Good morning, afternoon, or evening. Welcome to the Sarah Ald Show. 1067 FM, The Big Talker. I'm your host, Sarah Ald. You are listening to The Sarah Ald Show. Great Friday, everybody. We have quite the lineup for you tonight. Okay, and we are bringing on Joe Solecki, uh, who just won a UFC fight on television, live television, just recently against Austin Hubbard by submission in under four minutes. Joe, you're on the air with us. How are you? Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. Happy to be on. Yeah, absolutely. So open up with us a little bit. Tell us about this UFC fight coming out of the pandemic. You know, what was that like for you to have a win in under four minutes? You made it look so easy. Yeah, thank you. Um, we were super fortunate. Um, and people think I was like being humble and saying that. But, uh, you know, I trained for Hubbard twice because of the pandemic. You know, I actually got COVID back in June and had to pull out the week before the fight. Ugh. So I trained for him twice and just seeing what a tough guy he was it was supposed to be one of like the it was almost like like a fight of the night type performance which was going to mean super competitive probably both leaving on you know pretty banged up if not going to the hospital and uh i got in and got out really fortunate so super lucky and i put in you know uh probably the length of like three training camps to get ready for it because of the pandemic so just really lucky to be able to work and to be able to get the win and uh do all that during this crazy time, so it was really great. Yeah. Do you usually, now I'm curious, you said you put in way more than usual, of course, so how many times do you normally prepare for a fight, for a specific fight? Yeah, One well, time? You know, uh, yeah. So we train all year, you know, we don't really take breaks, really. Uh, I never really get far from, like, being on weight for the fight or things like that. But um, as far as ramping up, we usually ramp up really intense eight weeks out, but because of the pandemic, we didn't know with, you know, guys falling out and short notice calls and there was even a time when fights were canceled uh, you know temporarily so it was one of those stay ready things and for me it ended up being about 22 weeks from the time I started camp to the time I got to fight so it was uh, quite an extension of our usual ramping up so yeah. it's kind of wild and so now having done something you know three times opposed to the typical one you know preparing for it would you go back to doing it one time or do you think you'll stay with this new continuously you know attempting to um train for the same fight this many times well you know uh it's always the same we're always training pretty much the same okay. the only thing that changes like our periodization and our you know our conditioning and our sparring and things like that so um gotcha. it'll be necessary to go back to how we normally do it so that we avoid injury and we can all you know constantly improve on other areas besides just staying redlined all year but pretty much i'll get out of that phase for just a little bit go back to the drawing board and ramp back up. Sure. No, that's awesome. So you did make it look really easy, Joe, I have to admit. So going off of that, and I know a lot of people said that. I mean, I watched the fight live myself. I watched a lot of people post about how easy you made it look. So as a professional fighter, what makes a f- – and I'm sure it really wasn't easy. I mean, I'll let you attest to that. But what makes a fight the most difficult for you as a professional? Uh, you know, just a couple things is uh, I think when we have that pressure from – you know, our career pressure. We're not like a lot of the other sports. Uh, no. As far as, you know, in fighting, we're able to make a normal living. Like, sometimes people ask if we get paid and stuff. But uh, mm-hmm. even at the highest levels, when we, sh- we get, a, you know, our show money, and then we get, a, you know, basically half and half. We get half to show and half to win. So I think pressure like that during a time like this can make fights difficult, you know, in the leading up process, make it stressful, because we're not like these other sports where we get guaranteed paydays or you know, where we can just sit games out or things like that. Uh, we have to really, really earn our keep. Um, mm-hmm. That's number one. And then number two, I would say, in a fight, the most difficult is somebody who, kind of like what my last opponent was supposed to be, who just won't go away no matter what you're doing. So now I was able to, you know, get that arm in the neck and he ends up having to tap. Mm-hmm. But in all his previous fights, he was one of those, even if you're up two, two rounds to zero going into the last round, he's going to be in your face and just making your life miserable. So mm-hmm. uh, I say somebody like that who just is that, Stuff will not go away is probably the, the most frustrating thing in a fight. Okay. All right. Well, that's – I can see why. So so tell our listeners. Our listeners are always interested. Um, I, I had John Salter on last week. And, of course, you know, I know you know John and work with Salty Dog Jiu-Jitsu over there at Port City Sports Performance. Um, people are always interested in the backgrounds and the childhoods of fighters. And John definitely said it last week that people always think, you know, you come from this really rough background, really hard. And I think that that is maybe a misconception of your 
your field, of course. But regardless, you know, what was your childhood and your background like, Joe? Yeah, it couldn't be more opposite from what I think people think when you say you get a cage and fight for a living. I love to hear um, that. You know, I have, yeah, I have, uh, I have two great parents. I have uh, a brother and sister who are great, and, you know, they don't do anything resembling cage fighting. My brother trains a little jiu-jitsu, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, we had a normal upbringing. I went to private school for a lot of my life, and, uh, you know, I'm just a kid that found martial arts really early in life, trying to be like the Power Rangers and all the other, you know, karate stuff right. on TV, and... <laughs> Lucky enough for us, we accidentally found jiu-jitsu because my parents didn't know the difference, and it was 1999. And um, I was terrible. You know, I always say it is I met my first instructor, John Hassett, and uh, the way I've been wording it the last couple months when I talk about him is, like, I was born to be average in every sense of the word, especially in sports, and uh, he just put in my head about hard work, and he gave me these stories about guys like Dan Gable and and jiu-jitsu guys that were world champions and kind of filled my head with this dream of, persistence even though I was absolutely terrible mm-hmm. most of my you know uh, young competition career so yeah it couldn't be I couldn't be further from that and then when I started pursuing fighting that's where my underdog story became you know kind of losing a lot of friends and family and temporarily because of you know you're picking a rough path to go on and then kind of going broke completely and that's where mm-hmm. really it got tough for me but only because I chose to pursue such an uncertain path you know right but uh my childhood couldn't have been any better. My family couldn't have been any better. I had no hate in my heart. Just uh, oh. got really, really into something that was really difficult as far as martial arts. And it was it was on from there. That's so cool. It is a huge misconception. It's amazing how many people think that. You just think you have to have this killer instinct to be in martial arts. And I'm sure to a point you just have to have this refuse-to-lose attitude, right, as many winners and champions do. But that's really uh, awesome to hear. So I did touch on John Salter and that you're affiliated with them, Salty Dog Jiu-Jitsu. How did you find Salty Dog? Yeah, uh, so to, to, Matt, to go back to my first run-in ever with John Salter mm-hmm. was a couple days ago, 10 years ago. Uh, I was in wow. Boston at a tournament. Uh, I lived in New Jersey at the time. It was my 17th birthday, and they had a UFC fan expo in Boston. And they had a tournament for Jiu-Jitsu. So me and two of my teammates uh, made the ride over to Boston. And, you know, we competed in the tournament. And then that night, for, for my birthday, I got tickets to the UFC. So I had never been to an event. And I was sitting in the nosebleed, and a guy from New Jersey who I had kind of known just watching him fight on the regional scene was in the UFC. And he was fighting this guy from Alabama. You know, I'm from the north, so I was like, I'm not rooting against some southerner. And then, you know, not to mention it was some muscled-up wrestler who, you know, wrestlers would always kill me in shit tournaments. So I was like, I'm not rooting for some muscled-up wrestler from Alabama. And that muscled-up wrestler was John Salter. Um, Oh, my God. So whatever, I'm cheering against him 10 years ago. Uh, about seven years goes by, and he's teaching a seminar at the gym that I trained at in Myrtle Beach. And uh, I didn't really follow – I wasn't, just wasn't following the sport of jiu-jitsu that much, so I didn't know that he went to Abu Dhabi and all these great achievements in our sport. And, you know, I wasn't watching a ton of Bellator at the time, so I didn't know all he was accomplishing. Mm-hmm. And he came down, so just off of how he carried himself he's and an how amazing, he taught. Yeah, amazing guy. Exactly. And I, I knew Wilmington wasn't far, so he came, he taught. And then right there afterward, that was August 2017, I started making the drive a couple times a week. And that only lasted for about four months. And my wife and I made the move to Wilmington because we knew being around him and who he is, how he carries himself, the knowledge he has, we knew, A, you know, it would probably help my career for sure, mm-hmm. unless I didn't do my job of winning. But B, we'd become better people being around people like him and his wife, Lindsay, and all the people that they keep around them. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, just kind of came full circle and we couldn't be luckier to have have met him you know that is so awesome yeah and such an important part of being an athlete having the character around you i mean that's what makes champions at heart right absolutely yeah i mean i've been around you know not through my choosing just because some of the coaches i had early on in fighting as far as like uh you know i had a great childhood instructor until i left new jersey i had him since i was six until i left at 18 and I still go back, and we train all the time. I still call him my instructor. You know, he's always my lifelong mentor. But when I came to the South, I had been through a couple of gyms where you find people that you just do not need to be around. You don't find out until almost yes. too late. And uh, yes. to find somebody like John Salter down here was just 
one of the most fortunate things for me. Yeah, no, that's really great to hear. I love that, and I love those guys. So awesome to have you in Wilmington, Joe, especially coming all the way up from New Jersey. That's amazing. I'm from New York, so us northerners are taking over down here. Yeah, I don't think they like it, but yes, yeah. I, I'm definitely an honorary southerner, I hope. Yes, yeah, yes, I agree with that. So, okay, so even more amazing than this fight you just had, really, Joe, and even right now on air, I mean, you're – your post-fight interviews are impressive. I mean, you give exceptional responses, very well thought out, exceptional responses in the interviews you did on television. Um, very good on camera. Your character is fantastic as well. You know, it really shines through. You know, you talk about John like this, and I can tell you're of that same nature. And it says a lot, too, that you want to be around him, him of course. And as a role model to other people, people are curious who your role models are. Who are they? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's funny because kind of like how sometimes you get in with the wrong coaches or mentors, you almost pick the wrong role models sometimes, you know. And I think because it can be because of interviews and stuff. Like you sent me some questions to look at. I try not to look at them because I want to make sure I'm being myself and answering honestly, you know. Sometimes you see guys That's good. who, good. like when Conor, McGregor, when Conor McGregor started out in the UFC, I was kind of a really big fan of his because he was selling this narrative of, you know, from broke to, you know, the top and then – you know, his lifelong girlfriend, all this, and then all this stuff comes out where he's not that guy, right? And um, hmm. I really kind of broke my heart as a fan. I'm like, man, sure. I can't. So, you know, I always want to try and be myself and just be transparent, and, and I hope that comes through. But for me, I look up to, you know, the guys that I'm around now, and I'm starting to realize that it doesn't have to be a fighter. Like, fighters, some fighters motivate me. You know, I always grew up watching Frank Yeager, uh, Chris Weidman, guys like that. I think they're good people. They motivate me, but it's more looking at, you know, just me being a man, looking at other men that I can look up to and be like, be it in any department. So for me, yes, you know, I'm in yeah. the mat room a lot. I'm in the gym a lot. It's my coaches. So I have John Salter, uh, my boxing coach, who I've talked about a lot in other interviews is just like this quiet, humble, confident, but very, very humble and introverted guy who I found in the gym who took me under his wing when I couldn't pay him, couldn't pay for lessons and just mm. believed in me. Um, and we kind of were two little underdogs in the gym together. You know, he had kind of been out of the game for a long time, and sure. we found each other. And then uh, the other two guys that come with that is Jeff Jimmar, head coach in Charlotte, North Carolina, um, who just is another guy that wants to help young guys like myself and the other guys that train that are, that are in, you know, some of the bigger promotions achieve their dreams. You know, and when I see somebody pouring themselves in for no notoriety, they don't want to be in the picture, they just want to be there for you, I respect people like that. Um, the other guy is Hudson Rose, who's over – in uh, Hudson Rose Athletics here in Wilmington. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're a lot alike. You know, he, I call him jokingly a psychopath because he's obsessed <laughs> with working. He's obsessed with like, hey, you're fighting in December, then Thanksgiving I'll come in and train you. I don't care, you know. Here's the key to the gym. Get in here when you need to. Hey, we got to add more days. Like, people like that wow. who are just so selfless and so motivated and passionate about what they do, I love it. And then that go- also that goes with that is on the faith side of things, you know. Mm-hmm. It's funny, like, we, you know, uh, we've been coming, also because of John, I started going to Scottsdale Baptist Church out in Scottsdale, and uh, for the last almost three years now, and we, we recently became members, and I got baptized, and uh, it's been amazing to be around the people there, and it's funny, because they come up to us and congratulate us on our fights and stuff, and without sounding cheesy, I don't say it, but I'm like, man, I look up to you guys, like our pastor, yeah. uh, Phil Ortigo, is just this amazing guy who just always has these amazing messages, he's leading more people to their faith every single day, and uh, working in the community, having charitable causes, and just things like that that I feel like I can look up to and hopefully even try to be attentive to that one day, you know? So uh, it's guys like that, and then the, the last person that's really big in my life, obviously, is my father. Uh, I don't talk about him enough, but I'm changing that a lot lately, trying to remember. I always just assume people think, you know, sure. that I, I, yeah, yeah. I come from a good family. But, uh, man, my dad is, it's funny, The only th- like, I'm always very critical of myself, and the only things that I like about myself are from my dad. It's hard work <laughs> and doing the right thing when no one's looking and things like that. Integrity. Those are things that maybe when I was a kid, he might pressure me to do is work hard, be your best, have good character. And I was like, oh, leave me alone, you know? And now that I'm a man getting ready to be a dad, like, I look at that and those are the most valuable things I could have ever taken in life. So it's guys like that, real men, you know, or, or real good human beings, I should say, because yeah. I'm just a man, so I relate to them. But sure. if you're a woman, real good women, you know, just people doing what I want to do in the world. I can relate. So I had my first ever interview on this talk show, Joe, I want to say two years ago now with Joe Catanacci, the morning head host. And he asked me where I get my drive, motivation, 
character from, and I had the same exact answer, family, 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 and people you want to surround yourself with. That's so, awesome. Yeah, I mean, I can completely relate, and I'm sure all of our listeners, if not most of them, can also relate. So, um, so being a celebrity role model now and having these awesome people behind you and to come from, and the family aspect is huge, right? I run an organization um, that has heavy, heavy family values, and we instill that and harp on that constantly. So I'm constantly trying to figure this out with the people we meet and serve. And now you as a role model, of course, are going to have people like who we serve as an organization uh, watching you on television and aspiring to be like you in their dreams. So how can people like you and I, so blessed to have loving family that supported us, um, how can people less fortunate without that build themselves up the way people like you have? I think I think it's by having community, you know, and uh, Wilmington is the first place that I feel like I've ever had that, you know, where we've gotten involved in our community as far as having people in other areas that aren't, that aren't family. You know, we don't have any uh, family that lives, you know, directly in Wilmington. Sure. Um, so for us, you know, we've had to find people that are, on the same paths as us, people that believe in the same things as us, and people that don't, and bring them in and, and, and meet in the middle, you know? And I think finding people in our passions is probably the biggest thing because when you have that common bond of going through adversity, no matter what it is that you're doing, you know, for us it's martial arts and fighting. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you get in that fire with people, if you go through those trenches, I feel like you build a bond that is very, very family-like. So if you don't have that nearby because maybe you're a transplant or maybe you just aren't blessed to have your family with you. Um, right. I think you can find that by finding those common common ground, be it, you know, be it a charitable cause like, like you know, your, your nonprofit or being a church or being the gym. I really think you get in these common places where you're working toward a goal and, and you'll, you'll almost have a little family. Right. So the message really is whether you have family or not, you need to follow your dreams regardless because they'll be there on the other side waiting for you is what I'm hearing. Oh, 100%. And that's the thing is, my boxing coach says it best. You know, he's a two-time leukemia survivor. Um, but above that, he's just a great guy and a great coach. But, you know, for a long time in his life, he was paralyzed. And uh, he wears braces now. To the, I mean, walking is really tough for him. Stairs are, like, impossible. But when he boxes, he makes it work somehow when he holds the mitts. And he's always said the same thing to me about the work, you know, so – what I take is that is the goal or the dream too, you know, so mm-hmm. it's about the work day in and day out. So when you go through work with people, that that's the constant is the work. It's always going to be there. So, you know, it's, it can be lonely sometimes, but when you're putting in the work and you're being transparent about it and you're doing everything you possibly can to make it happen, I feel like people flock to you and they want to get behind you and then you have your family right there. They do. They do. I, that's a great message. I hope this is one of the bigger episodes on our podcast and on air on Friday today, Joe. So, um, okay, so a couple more questions here for you. Going into your fights, uh, you have this champion mindset. Do you have to go into your fights or do you go into your fights expecting to win them? Yes, yeah, absolutely. The second we sign the dotted line, I'm expecting to win. You know, but that being said, is you know that bout is always sneaking in. It's almost like until the little moments of them forcing me to answer questions, be it filming our pre-fight promo or be it an interview mm-hmm. or somewhere where I have a little bit of adrenaline, I'm I'm hot up. That's when I remember how much I'm going to win. In the in between, when I'm regular human Joe, I'm not all hot up on this crazy drug business adrenaline, um, then the doubt seeks in, and I feel like a regular person, and I'm, you know, in my room getting ready to go to the fight going, I can't do this. But the second I'm forced to answer a question about it, I remember, oh, yeah, I expect to win, you know. Um, I never expect it to go easy. I never expect it to be quick. I always plan for the worst. I never make post plans. I plan to be in the hospital every time. Uh, But I always do expect to win, or I wouldn't sign up the contract. Oh, my gosh. Well... Yeah, I'm sure you do have to, and that makes perfect sense to me. So, um, so last, well, a couple more. Where have the most learning experiences taken place for you in your life? On the mats, off the mats, um, at home, out and about, in fights, out of fights? Yeah, I think uh, definitely off the mats and traveling around to compete. And, and, but really what that is for me is that's, I'm kind of introverted. So that's my vessel to meet people, you know. Um, I hate small talk. I absolutely despise it. But I love getting to know people deep down. So, 
through jiu-jitsu and martial arts has been my way to do that. So when I get to know people, I've gotten to know people from every single walk of life. So for me, that's where I, I have the most learning because all of a sudden, you know, I'm a 19-year-old kid and I'm in Brooklyn, New York with one of my best friends who's a, who's a Muslim and he's from Lebanon. And now I'm in the Arabic neighborhood in Brooklyn. Everything's in a different language on the stores and everything. And I'm going to people's homes that he knows since he's a little kid. And all of a sudden, I'm like, wow, I learned a lot this trip. Or, you know, whoever it might be. I have, you know, through this, I've met so many different people, every single upbringing, every single faith, every single everything. And um, that's why I've gotten a lot of, all, you know, real experience that way. Otherwise, I'd probably be surrounded by people just like me from the same type of towns and the same type of families with the same interests. That's very boring, you know? Yes. Um, that's what's so crazy. Like when you see what's going on in the world, it almost doesn't make sense to me because I live in this bubble that is martial arts where you really you don't have that. We don't have, uh, you know, we don't have racism. We don't have bigotry, uh, anything like that. Like, you're just all struggling together on the mat to figure out this endless game that is martial arts and this endless struggle. So uh, definitely the most learning for me has been on the mats. College wasn't really for me. High school, I just spent half the time and got good grades. I thought it was easy, and uh, <laughs> that's been the biggest learning experience for me. Yeah, and that's another huge message I always try to harp on for our listeners and for the folks interested in Health Possible, my nonprofit as well, is that you learn the most uh, to become a winner, you know, in whatever aspect of your life that is by being in the right social circles and being around other people. So, so fabulous answer. Yet again, exceptional responses here, Joe. Uh, last question. So I want you, I want you to brag about yourself you're a very humble guy watch the interviews you know you put everything to family and it's wonderful and great but why should viewers kids and other people you know you already touched on connor mcgregor so why should people follow your journey um one just selfishly yes be selfish yes um yeah i don't know you know it's like uh i don't know i think a fool learns from his own mistakes no, and I'm kind of always been a watcher. Even since I was a little kid, I watch everything I possibly can. Like even when we go on these trips to fights, I'm still like this quiet fan. Mm-hmm. So I'm always learning from everybody. So I'm hoping that I can learn from all these guys that have made these crucial mistakes in their life and are, you know, obviously I have very small outreach compared to somebody like a McGregor or somebody like that. But hopefully, if I ever end up in a position, even with the little bit that I have now, is I can learn from those mistakes and stay true to myself and then be a good role model from, okay, I'm not going to do what he did. I'm going to do what Salter did or I'm going to do what I've seen Chris Weidman do or, you know, guys that are similar to me. So hopefully I can inspire other people who also feel like they were born to be average to not be so average, you know, because I definitely didn't have a lot of natural skill. Uh, it was just persistent, almost stupidity because it was just too dumb to give up. And, uh, you know, I, I just hope I can inspire other people in any area to do that and to do the right thing when I was looking and surround yourself with good people. I think no matter what happens, even if I didn't make it to the UFC and I was doing that, my life would be infinitely better as a result. And it has been. So I hope that's why people would follow me, is just to see somebody, you know, still going through. I'm not there yet. Still going through the fire, still in the adversity, still on his first contract in the UFC. I'm not driving around in a Bentley. Uh, I'm in a, you know, I bought my car for like, Twenty five hundred dollars cash after my first fight, you know. Yeah. So I hope that people will just see a real guy who's still going through it, who's relatable, and uh, you know, and, and relate to it. A very honest, transparent message. And I'll tell you, Joe, I had an astronaut, NASA astronaut on here not that long ago, uh, Colonel Doug Wheelock, who actually gave the same message that you just gave, which is we're all ordinary and we can be extraordinary if we just don't give up. And everyone was once a normal kid and you're just pursuing your dreams and the people watching you can do that as well. And they love that kind of honest, transparent message. So it's great. I think people should follow you. Definitely follow Joe on his journey in UFC and and his jujitsu um, career. He's doing great things. Came out with the win against Austin Hubbard. Joe, it's great to have you on today. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you. Same. We'll talk to you soon.
I have a new example this week, reflecting on last week's crazy talk. We make, and again, you know, I don't know the right answers. I'm just thinking on air of how to improve communities through government assistance. Because again, at my organization, that is something that people learn how to do in their health. And I know intuitively that you keep the spark of intrinsic motivation in the human by keeping them responsible. Like I said earlier, when we become responsible, we take on more responsibility. It's a domino effect. We're confident in doing it. We know how to. So now, we make prisoners do community service. Let's look outside the box now, right? Those are people who, you know, are being punished in prison, but they make them do community service and volunteer work. Now, as a college student, I got a scholarship. Now, it might have been a private college, but I'm quite confident public schools require community service as well. So we're making students who are not getting paychecks indirectly. Sure, yeah, you're getting an education out of it. But we are making students do community service. Great, life-changing, 100% encourage it, changed my life. Uh, we need to give back anyway, you know, as people and, and community members in stable environments and the ability to do so. We need to give back. We also make prisoners do it. So, zoom out. Why don't we make people on, say, welfare do community service? Right? These people, now when I say welfare, right, you're getting a direct paycheck. You're getting paid by the government for many reasons. There's people who really, really do need help. I personally believe that if somebody has the ability to sit home all day long and is, you know, at least a, um, is at least a functioning human being to the point that they can think, see, hear, you know, whatever those details are to do desk work that people sitting at home all day, living off government assistance, often at least have the capacity to perform desk job work. So I still, I still don't want any excuses there or make excuses in that manner. I do believe if you're sitting at home all day and there are jobs available, especially remote ones, if you don't have a car, that there is work to be done in this world. There's always opportunity where you're willing to seek it. And there's ways that you can earn your own living and not live off government assistance. So in order to put responsibility back on the people who are getting this free ride, why don't they have to volunteer or do community service work for nonprofits? Or for the community itself, for the actual local government, for the town? Clean up the highways. Or clean up the parks. I could name thousands of nonprofits that need volunteers who often struggle to make numbers. But there's nothing in place to make people sitting around at home all day collecting checks do that. Now again, a lot of this is education. I don't look down on people. I meet people where they are. I'm strictly talking solutions. Let's put the motivation back in the people. Let's get the spark. Let's make people responsible and get some pride. Let's make people proud of themselves, proud to live where they live. And also, one last thing on, you know, pass-fail evaluation of government housing, if you're going to live in government housing, cleanliness, how much neater and nicer would our communities be if we did, you know, from a literal visual perspective, make those people clean up and take care of their own homes, yards, etc., but now think psychologically, how many people just learned responsibility and pride from a very basic thing many of us, you know, it's really not basic for somebody that has those complications in life, but basic to someone like me. You know, I think it's basic to clean my house. I clean my house every single day. I cleaned houses for a living in college. I used to get paid to do it. So to me, it's like second nature. The psychological aspects that come with picking up after yourself Again, responsibility, you take it one step further sooner or later. Now let's talk crime. If we're keeping people busy with responsibility, 
Whether we make them get a job or we make them earn their government assistance, what's the potential percentage of crime reduction? They're busy taking care of things. Their home, maybe it's their families, maybe it's the community, right? And now, now let's say you've taken people from government housing and put them in, you know, literally in the middle of the day. You've taken them from, from doing nothing or sitting around all day. And you've placed them in a local park very nearby, easily, easily uh, done for transportation. And you've given them time to work on the community. How many people just came off the streets? You know, who are just, you know, up to no good or waiting, you know, waiting for something bad to happen or, you know, could just be at the wrong place at the wrong time. How many of those people, how much of that time can we remove from society by placing them in community service uh, groups, aspects, doing something better for the greater good? Now, let's talk the benefits of networking. You just met a bunch of people who, whether it's run nonprofits or also they're volunteering, have their own jobs, maybe they own businesses, etc. You've just placed them all together. We could teach these people networking. Maybe you didn't know how to get a job before. Maybe you didn't have internet. Maybe you didn't have transportation. Maybe you're just raised not to know any better. The importance of getting a job or maintaining one. Through doing community service, we also teach people skills. So now we're also providing trade or education. There are so many benefits it's not just about working. There's so many benefits to contributing that are selfish. And sometimes being selfish is great. This is where it's extremely positive. Things that can be selfish in giving, in giving, We can improve a lot of lives just by obligating some form of work at some capacity, even if it's on their own street and they don't have to drive anywhere. Again, probation officers, we already pay people to clean up those communities for them. Why not just have that person make them do it? And if you don't do it, obviously there's got to be repercussions. Maybe not doing the work is where it becomes, you know, I guess I don't want to say crime because that could be a horrible answer. I don't know the answer on that part. Moving on. Another crazy talk idea for all the bars out there. Have you guys... I heard this is a thing in California. I came up with this at work the other day with my good friend, who I'm not going to say his name, <laughs> but uh, we were talking about a singles bar. Now, I'm not, I didn't come up with this because I'm single, but I have a friend who is single and has a very hard time meeting people. And I will add probably meeting people his age who are also single. Now, that's okay, but it's also very hard to find a place to go where that is not just okay right, to go up to people or be approachable, etc. It's hard to go to a place where it's known that somebody is single. Again, this is for all the bars out there. I mean, somebody else might want to do this too as a business owner, but why don't bars have something called singles night where you have people come, and they could come with their friends, but their friends should also have to be single, but where you only let people in who are you know, state that they're single or looking, you know, for somebody else. Why? Well, don't think it's anybody's business, you know, at what capacity. You obviously talk to people when you get there, but but I know this person who's much older than me who has a hard time meeting people his age and doesn't want to meet somebody, you know, traditionally at the bar because there's a stigma tied to that and it's not wrong, but I can understand where he's coming from, right? I, personally, I wouldn't want that to be me either. I just... You know, again, it's a stigma and, and you want to meet somebody, you know, as naturally as possible. But what if, you know, if 
online dating is such a huge thing. What's wrong with in-person dating where you know everyone on the platform or in the facility is also looking? Again, singles night. Could be a huge marketing pull. Huge marketing pull for bars in Wilmington, especially, you know, in the surviving times right now. And everybody could do it. You know, it doesn't have to be one bar that's just this huge singles bar every night of the week. It could be, you know, a bunch of breweries link up or a bunch of bars link up and have their one night they decide you know whose night each week is singles night and all the singles go to that bar that night and maybe you don't have to only let singles in but maybe you just make it really known between social media and the front door that it's singles night I wouldn't suggest giving people like shirt tags or anything because then it just gets embarrassing if there's other people there not for singles night and then everyone's judging you that you went out, you know, to meet other people. I don't know. But to get people who are not fearful of stigmas or to get people looking to meet other people, you know, their age, but all ages welcome, um, you know, in the same situation, advertise to have them all gather together. Like I said, all these social media platforms to date online. Let's do it in person. Also, you get out and you meet new people, even if you don't end up dating them. It'd be pretty fun, I'm sure. I have a lot of friends that I bet would go. So just an idea on crazy talk for all the listeners out there. If there's any business owners who uh, needs a new marketing scheme, uh, singles night, help a bunch of people I know, you know, get out there in the world, especially during the pandemic. Actually, speaking of that, have you, has anybody else noticed how many less people you've met this year because of the pandemic? I mean, I know it's obvious, but really, I mean, really sat down and thought about all of the relationships you missed out on, not even realizing it because you wouldn't know who they were supposed to be, right? But all these people you did not meet this year because you couldn't go anywhere And even still, why would you talk to people you have to stay six feet away from or or have a mask? You're not going to approach people in masks and just, you know, spark up conversation. You have no idea what their mouth looks like. Like, that's really awkward and weird. I've said this on air before. It's so weird for me as a manager hiring during a pandemic when everybody in an interview comes in with a face mask on. And obviously they have to, but I can't even see who I'm hiring. Very odd. (laughs) It's very odd. Very hard to know character without a whole face. Very hard to, well, I mean, I guess not, but to a, to a capacity. It throws us off. Just throws off our psyche. And it's awkward. It's strange. We don't know what to make of it. We're not used to it. New segment, new segment, new segment. Uh, management moment of the week. How many people out there now as an employee right as an employee of somebody else at uh, many moments in my life many years in my life and even really still to this day of course you know we're always technically uh, working for our customers if anything right so how many of us and I can attest to this you get feedback from a manager or you get feedback or even just a a comment to try to deliver it more lightly rather than, you know, direct sit down I have feedback for you situation. How many people out there get feedback by a manager, don't like it, no matter what it is, and then realize later on that they only don't like it because it's always frustrating to be told what what to do or how to do it or, you know, the array of things that come with having a boss. How many people just hate having a boss, right? I think most people don't like having to report to somebody else. I mean, maybe that's just my bias because I'm one of those, so I see the world that way as a majority, and it might not be true. However, a lot of people I talk to will commonly tell me, you know, that they would rather not have a boss. They'd rather work for themselves, and I feel like we're in an entrepreneurship or entrepreneur flagship era where, uh, or I'm sorry, this era is the flagship of entrepreneurship. That's the right way to say that and deliver that, is that right now everyone wants to work for themselves. People are trying so hard to run their own businesses, even small little, you know, internet startups, little social media startups here and there, side gigs, you know, they've still got their nine to five. We all don't want a boss. 
human nature. Kids don't want to listen to their parents, right? It's almost like we never grow out of that. And I, I am not positive, you know, any kind of scientific reasoning behind that, but it's still important. Now I can attest to it as being somebody else's employee, but now speaking as a manager, I can attest to having employees who don't listen to me just because I'm their manager and not because it's anything really negative about them or about I or this or that or the other. And it's frustrating, but you have to remember at the end of the day, people are human, right? For all the managers out there listening, your staff is always going to get frustrated with you at some point because they're just tired of being told something, right? So now there's an aspect of this for the employees out there coming from a manager we know people are going to get frustrated with us but what are we trying to do as good positive leaders we're trying to coach people and having had and playing on a team in college it's important obviously to be coachable and that's something i learned playing on sports teams my whole life and in college but even more so as an employee and now even more so as a manager speaking to other to my own employees it is vital that you be coachable because if you're not coachable you might be defensive or disrespectful or completely not responsive and then that's just you know a performance aspect being coachable is one of the most important top three ways to stay on a team, right? So being coachable will get you on a team, but staying coachable will keep you on that team. Whether we are talking about sports, work, you know, whatever it might be, even in your relationship, you have to be coachable in your own relationships. Socially and romantically, you have to be able to take feedback from the other person in order to compromise. And of course, in giving that feedback or in getting feedback, there can be, you know, a mutual understanding of where things fall through, where we can improve. There's always room for improvement. And that should be a dialogue. It should be a strong dialogue and a strong conversation. And actually, I'm pretty proud of myself because I tweeted, being coachable will get you on the team and staying coachable will keep you there. And my old volleyball coach from, actually, he was my volleyball coach in middle school, but he is a champion high school volleyball coach at my alma mater, Windsor High School in upstate New York. He just retweeted that comment and said, Windsor Volleyball, good advice from an alumni. I will take it, Scott Simmons. Thank you very much. I know you're up there in New York. You probably are not listening to The Big Talker, but maybe you'll find me on Spotify. So yeah, guys, being coachable is everything to your success. Because if you're not willing to be coached anymore or take feedback anymore, then you're not looking to thrive. You're not looking to improve. And I can promise you not being coachable will not elevate your career or your social life, or any aspect of your character that you're trying to grow or, you know, can acknowledge that you need to grow. Who's giving you feedback does matter. That is important. You should not take advice from someone who you wouldn't want to trade places with, right? Now, now, of course, that can be a double-edged sword. You know, I might be somebody's manager, but that doesn't necessarily mean they want to trade places with me, you know, in life managing that place or, you know, what I'm doing career-wise otherwise. But if you want to grow into even a parallel type position of the person or situation that the person who is talking to you uh that that person, who that person is that's talking to you, you have to be able to receive feedback at some capacity. Now, even if you don't want anything to do with someone's situation when it comes to advice, it is crucial to your employment that you have optimal performance under their leadership, right? And doing your best, yes, if you do your best and you can confidently say you did your best, nothing else matters, you know, be, a bad job, you will separate from a bad job that does not appreciate you doing your best. Now, if you're getting feedback and there's room for improvement there and you're being completely resistant to that or you're not willing to mold, to adapt to the environment you're in to keep a job if you like that job, 
of course, you're not going to get to stay there, right? The way managers run things are the way they're supposed to be run. So being coachable gets you on the team. Staying coachable will keep you there. Now, I personally have caught myself being defensive before. Not disrespectful. No excuse for disrespect. But to be defensive, that's, you're, you're protecting something in yourself, in your mind, that you don't mean to out loud, or that you don't realize you're doing it, uh, or you just haven't taken the moment to open your mind prior to receiving that feedback. Maybe it's something you know that you do. Being defensive keeps people out, right? It keeps them away. And when someone doesn't give up on you, that says a lot about you. So if you're defensive to the point that someone's given up on trying to help you, you're headed down the wrong path. And it's a dark path. If someone does not give up on you, that says a lot. Now, if a coach or a manager does give up on you, that is the day you're done. You're signing your death certificate there with that person. If they never stop riding you or bothering you or commenting or pulling you aside, they still believe in you. That's the point. Another aspect of being coachable, guys, or receiving feedback, make sure your own biases are not in the way or your own... I hate to use the word prejudices, but let's, let's use age as an example because I experienced this. I've experienced this a lot because I'm 27 and there's been times I've walked into, ro- into rooms and onto committees and onto teams and wherever else and whether I was in charge or not, I was the youngest person in there by 40 years sometimes and I am in charge of people at other places and I've still got people who work for me who are much older than me, much, much older than me. I'm talking, you know, anywhere from 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. Those are the ages that I currently supervise in many different, many different arenas of my life. If you cannot take feedback from somebody younger than you, that's also an issue because it's not, it's not, I can speak to this personally. When I give somebody feedback who's older than me, it has nothing to do with being, you know, better than you at your job or wiser than you or etc. It has to do with I've had different experiences than that person, regardless of age. Yes, somebody younger than you or older than you, however it is, might have more experience in one area than you do, or might just be able to provide you with different strategies or methods to be more efficient. What does age have to do with accepting feedback? Now let's use positions, for example. Let's say somebody works for me, and I'm the manager. But they have feedback for me as a manager. Should I accept that feedback? Of course I should. Because if I didn't, how am I going to be a better manager? It's not always about the people above you. If anything, you need the people that are assisting you or working for you even more at times. Both matter. That is a slippery slope. You have to be willing to accept feedback from people because everyone has a different life experience than you. It doesn't make yours wrong, but they just might have a more efficient or a more effective way. Or it simply follows the rules and the methods that that facility uses, that business model uses. It might just be policy. Accepting feedback isn't an insult. Accepting feedback should not offend you. And if you are defensive or disrespectful to feedback, there's only one person in that situation who's not willing to grow. 
And it's the person not taking any feedback. Resistance, resistance to change does not get you change. All right, everybody, new segment, crazy talk. So I talked last week about government assistance and ways that we could improve the community using government assistance. Now, if you did not hear the show last week, I talked about how Health Possible has increased the household economic value, excuse me, value of our clientele uh, over 36% cumulatively last year in 2019. We have also uh, correlated with the elimination of food stamps for our clients, the elimination of government housing for our clients. And again, I say correlate because I can't say that was directly, you know, something that we were focused on or did. Uh, However, we help people to better take care of themselves and to better provide for themselves. So again, Health Possible's financial aid for alternative medicine, uh, fitness, nutrition, and mental health care. We financially aid those things. And our goal is that the people in the programs can successfully provide for themselves completely independently by the time it's over. Now, why is that uh, a correlation and a goal of ours? Because when you learn how to take care of yourself physically and mentally, you can apply all those newfound lessons and confidence and all the things that you've learned about yourself, you know, character-wise, your limits. It's a lot about limits. You can apply those things to your everyday life with family, jobs, income, so many other aspects. When we take care of ourselves, we also want to do better in life. We're proud. We want to stay proud, right? We, we have learned how to take responsibility for things, so we take on more responsibility for things. It's just a domino effect. Now, that being said, last week, again, Crazy Talk talked about government assistance and how to, uh, how to improve communities utilizing this. So, my example last week was if people are in government housing, why isn't there some kind of pass-fail evaluation of how well they take care of their homes, right? So the whole goal of, and the whole point of this conversation was that it's not easy, or at least it should not be easy, to live off of any system, off of any government, off of any organization, whatever that might be. And I I do say this, I'm not just saying this on air, you know, indirectly to my listeners. I'm saying this directly, I say it directly at my jobs, I say it directly at Health Possible. I'll sit a client down and say, I just want to let you know right now that you have an obligation to be a contributing member of society and to take care of yourself. Because right now, you've handed 100% of this issue to me. And I want you to acknowledge, and I swear, this is what I tell them, and I say, and I want you to acknowledge how uncomfortable it is right now that I'm telling you that I personally, as you know, speaking on behalf of the company, have financial control over your ability to get these services. Not you. Me. And tell me how that makes you feel. And of course, it makes them feel uncomfortable. No one likes not having control. You don't have to be a control freak to at least want to make your own decisions in life freely. Right? But the more we rely on government to make decisions for us, the more we give away freedom. And that's where those things align, right? On a micro scale and on a macro scale. So at Health Possible, I look clients in the eye and I say, hey, I have control over part of your life right now. Does that make you uncomfortable? Yes or no? No. I knew the or Yes, I'm sorry. Yes. I knew the answer was yes, it makes you uncomfortable. That's the best answer you could give me. Do you know what that means? And they go, no, what? You have to get control of it. And guess what you're here to do? Just that. You've lost control at some point in your life, and now you're here to get it back, and I am so excited to have a hand in your uh, education and your ability to relearn how to do that. You're going to turn your whole life around here. 
and they get all starry-eyed and I'm dead serious. And I mean every single word that comes out of my mouth when I have this conversation with them. And suddenly, it's just like a wake-up call. Like, oh my God, I didn't know that I was so dependent. Like, I just thought this was my normal everyday life. I mean, everybody listening right now, you're probably in your car. Could you imagine not having that car? Being used to it? Nothing wrong with public transportation. I used it in college. But it's still frustrating. Very frustrating to not have control over your day in that huge, huge manner. Your whole life revolves around somebody else's schedule. And when you're on government assistance, your whole life revolves around somebody else's money. And a group of people who dictate what you get to do with that money, which is fair and unfair at the same time. Unfair for you as a person, but fair because you should not be able to do whatever you want when you're not in control of your own life. You have not proved that you can, can that you can take care of yourself yet. So let's let's go all the way back to government housing. My example last week was if you're in government housing, there should be some kind of government assistance probation officer visiting your home and you have a pass fail evaluation of how well you take care of that home. We make prisoners do community service, right? Now, unfortunately, it's only because they committed a crime, but let's look outside the box now, right? Those are people who, you know, are being punished in prison, but they make them do community service and volunteer work. Now, as a college student, I got a scholarship. Now, it might have been a private college, but I'm quite confident public schools require community service as well. So we're making students who are not getting paychecks indirectly. Sure, yeah, you're getting an education out of it. But we are making students do community service. Great. Life-changing. 100% encourage it. Changed my life. Uh, we need to give back anyway, you know, as people and, and community members in stable environments and the ability to do so. We need to give back. We also make prisoners do it. So, zoom out. Why don't we make people on, say, welfare do community service? Right? These people, now when I say welfare, right, you're getting a direct paycheck. You're getting paid by the government for many reasons. There's people who really, really do need help. I personally believe that if somebody has the ability to sit home all day long and is, you know, at least a, um, is at least a functioning human being to the point that they can think, see, hear, you know, whatever those details are to do desk work that people sitting at home all day, living off government assistance, often at least have the capacity to perform desk job work. So I still I still don't want any excuses there or make excuses in that manner. I do believe if you're sitting at home all day and there are jobs available, especially remote ones if you don't have a car, that there is work to be done in this world. There's always opportunity where you're willing to seek it and there's ways that you can earn your own living and not live off government assistance. So in order to put responsibility back on the people who are getting this free ride, why don't they have to volunteer or do community service work for nonprofits? Or for the community itself, for the actual local government, for the town? Clean up the highways. Or clean up the parks. I could name thousands of nonprofits that need volunteers who often struggle to make numbers. But there's nothing in place to make people sitting around at home all day collecting checks do that. Now again, a lot of this is education. I'm strictly talking solutions. Let's put the motivation back in the people. Let's get the spark. Let's make people responsible and get some pride. The Big Talker. I am your host, Sarah Ald, and we will be back next Friday.